But um, I'm going to ask you to turn with me in, in the book of Philippians, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. In, in verses 3 through 8, last week's sermon, the Apostle Paul tells the Philippian church that he's praying for them. Uh, regularly and, and always praying for them with gratitude and joy because his heart is filled, he says in verse 8, with the affection of Jesus Christ for, for these people, that church. Um, he loves them, so he prays for them. And in our verses this morning, Paul lets them know the content of his prayer. So last week, I'm praying for you. This week, here's what I'm praying now, think about that. I, it's, it really is amazing. We're, we're about to overhear the imprisoned apostle pray. I, I, I can't think of another person um, apart from Jesus that I would want to hear pray more than I would want to hear the apostle Paul pray. This is how he prays for the church. And because it's Paul, um, the divinely inspired author who wrote infallible and inerrant scripture, which the book of Philippians certainly is, we know that this is a divinely inspired prayer. Um, th th this is exactly what God would have Paul pray for the church. So not only do we get a model of how we ought to pray in these verses, I mean, if th this is how God would have Paul prayed, then it's how he would have us pray too for our churches. Um, but we also discover God's will for our life, the, the life of the church in these verses. What, what God inspires Paul to, to pray for is what he wants for his church, for cross of grace. And so this prayer is relevant for us today. So let's listen to Paul pray in, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Would you, would you stand with me just out of respect for God's word while we... I'll read. This is his word to his church. So this is really the most important thing I'll say all sermon. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Well, Lord, thank you for condescending to speak to us. We want to hear you, so will you give us ears to hear? Open our hearts and minds to your Bible and open your Bible to our hearts and our minds. Guard us from distraction, and I pray that we would... Um, be those who tremble at your word like Isaiah. You said through Isaiah. That, that's who you look to, those who tremble at your word. And, and so make us the kind who get your attention. We place ourselves now under your word, under its authority, not over it. And because we know that your word by your spirit has the power to change us. And when you change us, you make us more like Jesus. So will you do that now by your spirit in Jesus' name? Amen. You may be seated. When Paul prays, 
for the church, his focus here is love. And if we're at all familiar with the writings of the Apostle Paul, that is no surprise. In in all of Paul's writings, there's an accent on the priority of love. This is the Apostle who wrote Colossians 3.14. Above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the supreme Christian virtue. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. I mean, what a beautiful statement that is. Every other virtue is ultimately a manifestation of love. Love is larger than any other virtue. In fact, love love is larger than all the other virtues combined. It it gives cohesion to life together in the church. It's what binds us together. It's what produces the, the fellowship that ought to exist among Christian brothers and sisters. If it's not there, there is no life together. There's no family relationships in the church, the way the Bible describes. So, of course, when Paul prays for the church, he prays for love. And in Paul's prayer for love, we see God's will. We see his expectation for our life as a church. Here it is. God intends for there to be consistent and steady growth in love. Paul didn't just pray that there would be obvious love in the Philippian church. He prayed that love would abound, that is, that it would spill over the banks, and not just spill over the banks once or every now and then, but more and more and more. Love is not a a static possession, right? Once Once you have love, you have love. All the, all the love you will ever have, all the love you'll ever need. I'm now a loving person, and that's it. That's not it. <laughs> love, we learn in this prayer, is a dynamic process. Now, you ever think of love that way? It constantly grows and increases. At least that's what God intends, which is why Paul prays what he does here. So Paul, Paul's not content with a status quo love in the Philippian church. And, and, and this was a loving church. I, I, seemingly more than any other church Paul was involved with. I, from the very beginning, from the planting of the church, which we read about in Acts chapter 16, love marked the church. Lydia, remember, g- gets saved, and immediately she took Paul and his missionary team into her home and cared for them. The Philippian jailer, uh, he gets saved and he feeds Paul and Silas and tends to their wounds. I mean, this is a church that though many members were poor, it gave generously to needy saints in Jerusalem during a famine. It's a church that reached down deep and sent a gift to Paul in prison and they sent it by the hand of Epaphrodites, one of their own who loved Paul enough 
to travel all the way to Rome and to associate with a prisoner awaiting possible execution with no thought to his own personal comfort and safety. This was a loving church. And still, Paul prays for more and more love, right? Better and purer expressions of love. What, what, what we learn in the opening phrase of the prayer is that there's no limit to love. Now, you know what? It's not in my notes, but it should be. And I'm wondering if I didn't already say this in earlier sermons when I preached through Philippians. But when I, when I talk about love, I'm talking first and foremost about an affection. Love, it is an emotion, right? It, it's, it, it, you hear all the time, love is a verb. Love is what we do. Love is an emotion. It's affection. It's brotherly, sisterly affection for one another and for God. And, and so love is a noun and it's a verb. Everything Paul talks about that we do for one another is what love does. It's an expression of love. So we got to keep it in mind. Love is, both, love is both a noun, an affection, and love is a verb. Out of that affection, love acts. Got it? I mean, otherwise, 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't make sense when Paul says, some give their bodies, right? They, they sacrifice themselves. That's doing, right? But if they have not love, it's nothing. They don't have a fact. You can, you can sacrifice your life, but if you don't love affectionately, it's nothing. So that's what I, I just want to make that clear before we go on. So when Paul prays for more and more love, it's, it's affection, more and more affection that works itself out as expressions of love. Um, so what we learn in the opening phrase of this prayer is that there really is no limit to love. Wherever there's a need, we have the responsibility to move toward that need in love. Right? There, there's no end to love. It never says, love never says, I've done enough. That's all the love I have. I will love up to this point and no further. Right? Christian love never says that. Love knows nothing of boundaries because our love is meant by God to abound more and more. It's meant to spill over boundaries. Now, you may have noticed that, that Paul does not specify the object of love. He just prays that love would abound more and more. Well, love for whom? I've already been taking it as if um, his emphasis is our love for one another, which, given the immediate context and the context of the rest of the letter, I think is right. But that said, our love for one another is directly connected to our love for God. He, here's how the Apostle John says it in 1 John 5.1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So, so the fruit that Paul prays for here is love for one another. But the root of that love is our love for God. Which is why the Apostle Paul prays that love may abound more and more with 
knowledge. What does knowledge have to do with love? Well, the answer is that it has everything to do with love. We need to know something about the word translated knowledge here. Paul uses that word 15 times in his writings, and it always has to do with spiritual knowledge, like knowledge of God. In other words, using, using this phrase, with knowledge, Paul is saying that knowing God empowers our love for others. Paul's using an economy of words here as he summarizes his prayer on behalf of the church, but I don't think this is reading too much into that phrase, with knowledge, since that's how Paul uses it elsewhere. The reason Paul prays for the knowledge of God in this prayer for love is because knowledge of God empowers our love for others. Now, what, what Paul says cryptically here, the Apostle John says outright. 1 John 4.8, here's what he says. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Or we could state that positively like this. Anyone who does love knows God because God is love. Not, knowledge of God is the way our love increases, which makes sense since God is love. In other words, love is a part of the essence of who God is. To be God is to be love. That's not all it means to be God, but love is a part of the very essence of who God is. And, and when we start talking about the essence of God, you better believe we are in over our heads. And so, in His kindness... God doesn't just leave us with this massive but very abstract statement, God is love. He fills it out for us. God gives us a concrete picture of what love looks like. So what, what does love look like? Well, it looks like the gospel. So here's 1 John 4, 8 again, but I'm going to read all the way through verse 10. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So this is what God's love looks like. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The manifestation of the eternal love of God, the visible manifestation of the truth that God is love is Jesus coming into the world. The, the, the abstract notion that God is love became concrete in history with the coming of Jesus. That's why we love the Advent season, right? And, and here's what we know about God's love from this concrete expression of it in Christ. We know that God's love acts on behalf of others, right? That we might live through Him. That's why He sent Jesus. That we might live through Him, John says. And it's to meet needs. We move towards others to meet needs, right? Jesus, our propitiation, met our greatest need by averting God's wrath 
against our sin. He averted it. That's what propitiation is. And he took it on himself. No matter the cost. Right? We love no matter the cost. God sent Jesus knowing that it would mean his suffering and his death. And Jesus came knowing that it would mean his suffering and his death. And we can add, no matter how undeserving the objects of his love are, God, God sent Jesus into a world that hates him. So, put that all together. God's love acts on behalf of others to meet needs no matter the cost, and no matter how undeserving the objects of his love. And that love is to be the basis for our love for one another, which is why we must have knowledge of it. Right? Jesus said this, John 13, 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So we're, we're to love one another the same way that God loves us. In other words, our love for one another should look like gospel love. It, it, it's to be a, a love that is utterly other-focused. It's to be a love that meets needs. It's to be generous. It gives no thought to the cost. It deems no person unworthy or undeserving. It knows no limits. It gives everything. It abounds more and more. A knowledge of Christ and His love defines and informs and multiplies our love for others. Knowledge of Christ and of His love for us causes our love to overflow upwards toward God and outward towards one another. Which is why Paul prays that our love would abound more and more with knowledge. And it's why we must give ourselves to growing in our knowledge of God. Right? It, it is the means by which our love increases. So, if we perceive our love diminishing, maybe our love for others is running cooler than it should. Um, we aren't as willing to give in order to meet needs as we know we should be. We're tight with our time and our energy. We have boundaries. Maybe you're aware right now of someone that you have no affection for at all, and you don't think they deserve it from you. Maybe you're harboring bitterness or resentment. So what do we do? Answer? We give attention to growing in our knowledge of God and His love in Christ. We give priority to this gathering of the church with our Bibles and hearts open, eager to learn more about God. We give priority to God's revelation of Himself in the Bible every single day. So whether or not we pursue knowledge of God in the Bible has an effect on how well we love one another in the church. That's how important daily devotions are. Isn't that amazing? I mean, every new thing we learn about God, every time our knowledge of Christ goes deeper, it's reason for loving Him more. And when we love Him more, that love will spill the banks and abound more and more in gospel love for one another. 
So our love is to abound more and more with knowledge and, Paul says, in verse 9, all discernment. Paul prays for the increase in knowledge of God and for an increase in discernment. That is, discernment in how to love others. The, the word that gets translated discernment there means depth of insight. But Paul's prayer for more depth of insight stresses the need for wisdom to do the right thing and speak the right words on behalf of others in all circumstances. Right? This is a prayer to know what to do or what to say in order to meet needs. Right? Paul is praying that we would know how to appropriately express our love. So, but, but by using these two words, knowledge and discernment, the Apostle Paul is uniting, he's uniting personal knowledge of Christ and practical understanding of people and saying that both are necessary in order to abound in love. Right? Know God and know one another so that you can express love to others personally and specifically and skillfully. Now, this demands deep relationships in the church. We cannot merely be casually acquainted and love one another the way that God intends. This depth of insight requires time and attention and investment and effort. In the context of the church, it requires real participation in community group and discipleship group. We need to ask, for the sake of love, do I really know the people I'm called to love? Am I invested in relationships in the church? Do I know others well enough to love them well? Or am I just too busy? Remember, this prayer is God's will for the church. Now, I'm moving on from discernment more quickly because I think this is all fleshed out more in the next phrase. In verse 10, we have two purpose statements. The first one, so that, that's the purpose statement, here comes the reason why, so that you may approve what is excellent. That, that word that gets translated approve there points to a, a process of testing uh, and then approving what's excellent or what's best or what's genuine. In other words, the reason why we should abound in love, in knowledge and depth of insight, is in order to discern what's best. Love seeks what's best for the other person. So love examines the options and approves the best one. Now... <laughs> This is a complex prayer. If you're sitting there thinking, man, this is complex, you're not alone. Almost every Bible commentator I looked at agree that this is one complex prayer. But here's what Paul's praying. He, he's praying that their love will grow 
as it's informed by the knowledge of God in Christ and insight into others so that they will be able to choose, we will be able to choose the best way to express love to one another. That's what Paul's praying here. What they, we, would know the best, that we would know the best way to express our love in any given situation. So we have to ask ourselves, like I did when I originally prepared this sermon, have I ever prayed that I would know the best way to love a person in any given circumstance? Now, I have, and you probably have, but do I do that regularly, daily? See, the choice here isn't between what's bad and what's good. It's a choice between what's good and what's the best. God's will for us is that we would express our love for others in ways that are best for the other person. In other words, biblical love is radically other-centered. Right? This love, uh, this is a love that it's, it's, it's not concerned. It's a, it's a love that that's, it's dialed in, a love that's attentive, a love that's sacrificial, right? Loving someone is more than just being kind to them, and it's definitely more than just tolerating them. It, it, it's knowing what's best for them and then giving it to them. Pa- Paul's going to say later in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love looks to the interests of others and asks, what's in his or her best interest right now? And then love does that. Now, look at the second purpose statement in verse 10. And so, there's another introduction to the purpose, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So Paul prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that they would be pure and blameless until the second coming of Christ. And that word that is translated pure here means sincere, as in no hidden motives or pretense. Right? And the word translated blameless means not causing offense or not causing others to stumble. So Paul's going to go on uh, in this letter to talk about envy and rivalry and, and conceit. This is his prayer that those things would not infect the church and kill love. This is the, this is the prayerful version of his exhortation in chapter 2, verse 3, where he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. That's no impure motives, nothing that would cause offense, but, so here's the pure blameless motive, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's what love does. Love never tries to gain the upper hand and get the advantage, right? It looks out for the best interest of others because it truly believes that others are more significant. That's what it means to be pure and blameless. And it's all leading to the day of Christ, to his return. This is the second time in just a few verses that Paul's mentioned the return of Christ. Right? He mentioned it in verse 6. And I'm sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's asking God in the prayer in verse 10 to do what he's already expressed with confidence that God will do in verse 6. He's now praying for it. And what we're reminded of in this prayer is that we're a work in progress. Right? We are under construction until the day of Christ. The promise of Christ's return casts a light on Paul's life. And here we see it light up his prayers. Right? With his mind on the future perfection of God's church, he prays for the growth of God's church in love in the present. So he's motivated, and he's motivating us to press on in love for one another, looking to Christ's return, right? by keeping our eyes on the prize. And so we see that what God's will is for our lives. His will is that we would grow in love every day until that day. Preparation for that day was a way of life for the Apostle Paul, and he prays that it would be a way of life for us as well. And that way of life includes abounding in love more and more every day. I mean, is that how we think about life? About our days, right? Every day is preparation for that day. That's how we should think about our lives. This is, this is what ought to inform our prayers. Every day is preparation for that day. And the way we prepare for that day, the day of Christ, is by abounding in love. And so Paul gives us a, a vivid picture of what the church will look like on that day in verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. We will be like trees laden with fruit, right? Branches hanging low and heavy as the character of Christ and his love are formed in us. From from this day until that day, God will be forming his church, this church, into a community of believers who grow in love so that on that day we will be pure and blameless and filled with with the good fruit, the fruit of good deeds inspired by love. That's God's will for us. Now, it's very possible, almost inevitable, to be overwhelmed at this point in the message. I mean, just consider the implications of this prayer for our lives. We might be overwhelmed when we consider how we live and love and pray. Paul's prayer has been all about what we do, right? Abound more and more in love, get to know God in Christ and his love, acquire a depth of insight about the people we're called to love, know the best way to love them in every situation, love with pure motives, never cause offense, let our lives be filled with the fruit of godly love. That's God's will for us, and it's what we should pray for. And it has the potential to be overwhelming and perhaps even tempt us to discouragement. But, thank God, Paul concludes his prayer by turning his attention away from our responsibility to obey and he ends 
by drawing attention to the source of our obedience and growth. The entire prayer is only possible, verse 11, through Jesus Christ. This love and its fruit is not possible by human effort alone, but only by the grace of God that empowers our effort. And that's not a contradiction. Paul is going to make the point masterfully in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. You know it, right? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, we could put in there, abound in love more and more. For, not so that, but for, this is the ground of our work, our effort to abound in love, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's no need to be overwhelmed. God is at work in our lives. God is never not at work in the lives of his children. And he's at work to bring about his will and his pleasure. And we know that his will for us is that we would abound in love. This will be realized in our life because Christ, who began a work in us, has pledged to bring it to completion. So, we can pray with faith for cross of grace, and we can pray for ourselves, just like Paul prayed for the Philippian church. That We can pray believing that God will cause our love to abound more and more as we get to know Him and His love for us more and more, and as we get to know those in this church that He calls us to love more and more so that we will know the best way to love one another with pure motives and blameless service that's filled with the fruit of godly love all through the grace of Christ. And so, the last phrase of the prayer, to the glory and praise of God. Not to the Philippians, not to us, to God. This is the highest purpose of our lives right here. This fills, this fills every day of our lives, even the most mundane moments with purpose. Here's the purpose. To abound in love through Christ for the glory and praise of God. That's it. That, that's the purpose of our life. Right? That's what Cross of Grace and Cornerstone Community Church are all about. That's what our individual lives are all about. That's God's will for us. And that's why Paul prayed this prayer at the outset of the letter. That we would abound in love through Christ for the glory of God. The rest of the letter is intended to help us achieve, by God's grace, what's prayed for in these verses. And we, too, can pray this prayer with confidence that God is eager to answer it because it's his will. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that you don't command us and leave us on our own to obey, but you have given us your spirit, part of the new covenant that Christ purchased with his blood, which we're about to remember as we take communion. And uh, you've you put in us the will to obey. And, and so we know that all these things that we um, just talked about, it was like a fire hose trying to take 
in all this prayer means, but it's your will, and so you will accomplish it through your people by your grace. Not without our effort, not without us doing what you've called us to do, but you are the ultimate doer in all things. And so I just pray that you would heap out grace on cross of grace and that you would uh, do what I can't do and, and uh, cause the truths that have been preached here to, uh, to go deep into minds and hearts so that they work themselves out in our lives. Do this for our good, for the sake of our church, and in Jesus' name.